Welcome back to the Aon Hewitt Pensions Podcast. In this episode, we focused on automatic enrolment. We look at some of the issues that came out of the survey with John Foster and Stephen Lee. We discuss what survey respondents thought of automatic enrolment changes coming into effect throughout next year. Do they think that both the company and pension fund are ready for these changes? And how are they going to implement the contribution rate rise? Do they think the contribution levels will be sufficient? What levels do they think members should be targeting at retirement? Download your own copy of the Defined Contribution Pension Scheme Survey, Navigating the Future. Simply go to the Aon UK website and navigate to the Defined Contribution section. Each chapter has its own dedicated analysis that you can download. And now, time for the interview. The Aon Hewitt Pensions Podcast. Uh, today I'm joined by Stephen Lee and John Foster. Welcome, gents. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, John, could you just tell us a little bit about your role here? Sure. Um, I'm a, a principal in the DC consulting team. Um, I'm involved in advising sponsors and trustees of DC arrangements on strategy, design, and all aspects of operation and governance. Brilliant. And, and Stephen, what about yourself? Um, okay, likewise, I'm a uh, consultant in the DC team. I've been working in DC for many years, coming up to 20 years anniversary, I think, soon, so something to celebrate. Uh, and uh, yes, I advise companies and, and trustees in, in all matters DC, really, uh, having spent some previous time working at DC providers on the other side of the fence, uh, providing plans. So we, we uh, discussed in episode one um, a bit about the... Um, start of the survey and today we're going to be sort of discussing chapter two. Uh, so I wanted to kick off with the, the first question. Um, auto enrollment's gone pretty well, I think it's you know, safe to say it's been a success, but what are these changes that are coming uh, into fruition next year? Uh, Stephen, could you expand on that for us? Certainly, yeah. So when auto enrollment was introduced, the minimum contribution requirements specified that companies had to pay a minimum amount with a minimum total amount going in. Uh, and that was always planned to increase over the years, recognising that it might be a good idea to start people at a low level uh, to encourage people to remain in pension saving. So the first increase is coming in April next year. Uh, and that means that rather than at the moment, the minimum amount of uh, 2% of earnings, whatever those earnings may be, that's actually increasing up to 5% and then increasing again next April to 8% in total. Uh, of which the company must make a certain uh, amount of that contribution going in um, and the member can make some or the company can, can pay a bit more if they want to. Companies could have addressed you know, this with the communication when uh, auto enrolment was sort of first uh, touted you know, four or five years ago. Do, do you think there's been a good enough communication strategy for the majority of, of schemes? I think a lot of schemes, when they brought auto enrolment in, there was a huge uh, communication around that to explain what was happening and to try to make sure employees didn't get scared off and didn't think money was being taken off them um, without good reason. Um, I think, however, it all seemed quite a long way away when increases were coming in. So that may have been um, communicated at the time, but things might well have changed between that point, which could have been sort of four or five years ago and where we are today. And not only that, but that the being an auto-enrolment process there was very little engagement in those communications and therefore it's, 
it's highly unlikely that members would have taken on board that sort of detail at that time. So, so what, what's keeping uh, pension funds awake at night then as we, we sort of roll into this next phase of auto-enrolment? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting that, the, that there's actually been some further consultation around this. So not only are um, contributions scheduled to increase, as, as Stephen's already said, but, but there are some, there's some consultation around um, whether other changes might be made in future to thresholds, uh, contribution thresholds, and uh, things like the charges that apply to funds, etc. So it's, a, it, it, it's potentially there's further change down the line. But um, I think companies got a f- few things on their plate to think about in the meantime. Um, so I think our survey found that um, around 40% of companies are actually going to need to do something in terms of these minimum increases. So although companies factored it in when they first set up their auto-enrolment plans uh, and designed around the future increases, where, where we've got to now, there are over 40% of, of respondents to our survey said they need to take some sort of action, yeah. uh, either in response to the changes this coming April or, or April 2019. So there's still quite a lot of schemes that do need to do something. Uh, and of those, I think the most common approach was going to be to, to move employees up to a next level of matching contributions. So where there's some sort of matching contribution structure, I think the simplest approach was just take away the bottom level. Let's move employees up to the next one. Because a lot of, I mean, a lot of people look to um, sort of foreign um, implementations of automatic enrolment, and especially Australia is touted as a, a as a great success story. So you, you don't think compulsions on the horizon? It's a a potential route, but it's always been one that's um, that we've steered away from in the UK. We have a history of of, uh, of pensions membership being voluntary, and uh, the the opportunity that members have to to opt out is seen as a mechanism where that's still maintained, and people can make a choice about whether they save through pensions or through alternative vehicles. So, just think—I mean, you know, thinking through from a, you know from a, a, a typical employee um, with the changes coming into place next year, you know, it sounds like pension uh, schemes are going to have a, a pretty big job on their hand managing this change so what, what are you picking up from them about how they're planning to go about that well as i said a lot of schemes i think who, who responded to our survey around um i think 50 percent plus were simply planning just to remove that bottom tier that they offer and move people up uh, there were a large number though over 30 percent still hadn't really decided what they were going to do wow so they recognize that they need to do something um, and we're consideration around that is if you're doing something that's not necessarily in line with the bare minimum required under legislation, then there might actually be a requirement to consult with employees at some point as well. So for those schemes that haven't made their minds up, they need to get a move on in terms of working out what they're going to do um, and potentially allowing for that time to consult with employees about any changes too. And as Steve says, the communications process is going to be key to that to make sure people are either consulted with if that's a requirement or at least made aware of the changes in advance to ensure that as many people as possible are, are not taken by surprise by any, any sudden increase in pension contributions. So there's going to be a few sort of um, key things for, for different management levels within the pension fund. I mean, I kind of guess the, the issues of the HR director are going to be all focused around the, the comm side, while the scheme are obviously looking at, um, you know, the, 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 the implementation. There's a lot of communication going on internally to make sure that um, 
this process is going to be followed through? Well, I think the um, it's, a, it's a key point that the the, the combination of and, and, and a sort of a, a joint operation between HR and, and pensions is, is clearly a key one in terms of making sure that the employer and the, the trustees are aligned. And clearly, it's quite helpful if the the CFO or the FD is involved in that discussion as well because any contribution increase that's linked to a matching contribution from the employer, for example, has a, a cost implication from the company as well. But So it is very much a joint effort um, to make sure that, firstly, they're meeting their requirements, which is an employer duty, and secondly, that the scheme's being um, being developed in a way that's sympathetic to the, the needs of the employees and the HR team can feel that they're uh, that it's, it's in sympathy with the overall uh, benefit package that the employees are receiving. And just, um, you know, we, we, you've mentioned the contribution levels. Do you think they'll be sufficient? Well, uh, when they originally did the, uh, the the work around this for the, the Pensions Commission that led to the introduction of the changes, um, the original uh, imp- study effectively showed that the levels of contribution they were envisaging at around 8% of uh, these these band of earnings that they that they based everything on, um, that, that actually that would be sufficient for, for people on average earnings throughout their lifetime savings. Um, if, if, we, if we translate that to, well, you know, what does that mean in typical pension scheme world? Um, firstly, most people don't contribute for their lifetime. They're joining DC plans at various stages in their lives, um, and therefore they're not necessarily have the opportunity to contribute for that length of time. Uh, and secondly, the, the, the overall our overall view of that is that the eight percent contribution over lifetime is, is is really not going to be sufficient for most people to to sustain them in retirement. Um, so, the uh, I guess one of the challenges that we've got translating into into the pension scheme is actually the, the proportion of schemes themselves that understand what benefits members might get um, is actually quite low. So, over half of schemes actually don't have a, a handle on what level of benefits their members are expecting. So I think there's there's a couple of things there. Generally, contribution levels are are lower than they need to be. And secondly, there's a low appreciation of actually how much benefit members are destined to get. Mm. And indeed, if, if those running pension schemes, trustees and scheme managers don't know what, what a member's likely to get when they when they retire, I don't think we can really think it's fair to expect members to know. If, if the people in charge don't know what the scheme's going to deliver, I think it's all very well saying oh, it's an individual responsibility in DC for members and employees to take control. But I think if those running the schemes and designing the schemes don't know what the outcome's going to look like, it's a bit of a push to kind of expect the individuals to know that as well. Yeah. So, I think the really, the really um, I think quite a shocking statistic from our, from our survey is that um, over half of those aged 35 or less are paying less than 4% overall into their pension schemes so there's a there's a big difference between that and the 18 percent we think is a the right sort of level for lifetime savings to generate and sufficient income i mean there's a lot of talk um last year about the pensions dashboard do you think products like this coming you know a single product where people can view everything in one place is you know the answer or part of the answer certainly certainly part of the answer i think that the the, the challenge with pensions and in member engagement, which is covered under a separate section of, of, of the survey, is a really key one. The dashboard itself, a mechanism for pulling information into a single place in relation to everybody's, uh, all the savings that the members accumulating through their working life is a really 
important element to that. And it will certainly help in, in, that, in members getting an understanding of what their overall benefits are. Because mm. I think, as, as you sort of alluded to earlier, people don't necessarily stay in one job throughout their career, yeah. so they're not paying into the same pension scheme throughout their career. One of the things we asked people about in the survey was um, of those that did know what sort of um, outcome members and employees are likely to get from the pension scheme, um, somebody who, who was in the scheme throughout their whole working career, it, the most common answer was around 20 to 40% of their earnings would be received as income in retirement. So I think the pension dashboard would be really useful to helping to bring that together because the likelihood, likelihood is somebody isn't going to be in that scheme throughout their whole working life. But if they were, yeah. then that's the kind of level that was, was typical um, in terms of what they might get. So you also mentioned a sort of uh, a contribution level of 18% there. Do you think that, I mean, do, do we know what the disconnect is between what people are actually putting away and, and you know, obviously what they should be to achieve these these returns that um, that people are expecting? Well, I think that the uh, one fairly key response from a membership survey we, we, we've carried out recently is, is that people actually can't afford to pay that sort of level of contribution or they have other priorities with that money, such as paying off their mortgages or paying down other debts. So there are obviously conflicting uh, uses for that for that pound. So we can say in abstract that actually that's the level you should be saving at. There's a disconnect, as you quite rightly say, because the other calls and demands on money um, on the wallet uh, are are sufficient to, uh, to to move people in a different direction and more immediate needs. And how are schemes addressing the adequacy of retirement provision? Well, I, I think on that, I think setting a target is is quite a helpful place to start. Um, as we said, it might not be a case that somebody's in that scheme throughout their life, but I think certainly those running schemes should assume that if someone were to be, what sort of target income should we be trying to, to help them achieve when they retire? And and as I said, the kind of level of that looked to be around 20 to 40% of, of earnings would be um, paid as income in retirement, which doesn't sound like a lot. I think if you suddenly have to take a, a cutting earnings down to about 20 to 40% of what you're currently earning, I think most of us that would be a complete shock and we would not, not be able to maintain our standard of living, which is ultimately what, what people are looking to do. And I think the, the, the work that we're doing with schemes is, is firstly to give them appreciation of what that level of outcome is likely to be for members, which we can do as part of our, uh, the modelling work we can do. Um, but it's actually then to say, well, that, if, you're, if you're setting out to get an understanding of what it is, then you, you need to have some view about what's an adequate level of benefit that you can generate from the plan. Of course, trustees don't have control of the purse strings from the employer. Um, so therefore, it's a case of making sure that members make the most of whatever the employer is making available to them as part of the, the communications process. Um, so I think getting an idea of when, when members are, do retire, what sort of level of benefits they're getting, which is the point Stephen's made, there's a gap there. And then there's the communication to members, which is them saying, well, how can they help themselves to understand better how they can bridge that gap? I think, uh, you know, when um, automatic enrolment came out the first time, uh, and, and, you know, a lot of the larger schemes had their hands held, I, I would say, to push them through the process. And a lot of schemes, I think, just you know, left it late and, and went and, and got some, some form of provision in place just to meet the, meet the deadlines, whether they were extended or not. Do you think now is the time that you know they should really be looking at this is a secondary automatic enrolment and really reviewing 
what provisions they had in the first place and now making the amendments? I think there's an opportunity to revisit to make sure it's actually in line with the, the rest of the provision they're making for employees. There, there has been, as you quite rightly say, a kind of an entry level that's very different from the, the sort of the running rate that we've typically seen in, in, in DC schemes. So a typical average contribution that was 12% plus in aggregate has come down to around 9% in aggregate because of the, the drag that uh, that, that auto enrolment tier has, has brought into the, uh, the, the maths of it. Um, but I think it's bringing those tiers more in line with and, and to, to become part of and embedded in the, scheme overall, the scheme's overall design, I think we are seeing yeah. them as a more common theme. And, and, and as, as Steve has already said, the sort of removal of that introductory tier completely, not giving people the option to opt down. There's only 9% that would give, in the, in the response to survey, that would give members the option to opt down to that lower level still. I think it does mean that you can make sure that's much more an integral part of the scheme design. And I think just following on from that, from, from a scheme design point of view, um, those sort of schemes uh, who are looking a bit a bit wider than just the auto-enrolment minimum are actually looking at the what's an adequate um, level of, of retirement to, to help our employees retire because, of course, without a, a default retirement age anymore or um, without companies being able to force people to retire at a certain age, there, there is kind of the worry that we might be storing up a problem of people not being able to afford to retire um, in later years and companies actually having to manage that ageing workforce, which, which might not be something they want to do. So looking at that now, some companies are looking at things like auto-escalation of, of contributions outside of the auto-enrolment increases and just looking at can we, can we put something in place to automatically move people up the contribution scale uh, perhaps similar to the sort of system in America, the Save More for Tomorrow system, yeah. whereby people commit to giving up some of future pay rises into the pension. So they're not actually seeing that hit them in the pocket because more money will go in at the same time as their pay is going up. So they won't ever feel kind of a, a loss in their take-home pay. Um, so that's something that's been talked about in the UK for a few years. But in practice, it's quite difficult to implement because payroll companies can struggle with that kind of that kind of complexity. Uh, and so what some companies have, have started doing now is rather than moving people up through the scale gradually, I've actually seen sort of two or three recently where they'll enrol people at the top level. So rather than putting people at the bottom level and moving them up, they'll put them in at a top level of sort of say 15%, 18% total contribution and let people opt back down if they want to. Okay. But actually relying on that inertia in the case of, well, one particular case I've seen, I think about 70, 75% of people remained at that top level, which was, you know, incredible amount. If, if it was the other way around, we wouldn't expect to see anywhere near that level of people choose to yeah. to contribute that much. And that's where that dialogue between the, the scheme and the, and the employer is so important, in that that's a, that's a big commitment from, mm. the, from the employer in terms of funding at that higher default level of contribution. And was there anything in the survey that um, surprised you both? I think personally, I was surprised by the number of people running schemes who didn't actually know what members were going to get. You know, that, that was a big shock because you kind of think that these people are responsible. The fingers on the pulse. Yeah, yeah. indeed. So, although I, I believe it was lower than, than my last survey a couple of years ago. So at least we're moving in the right direction. Yeah. So. I guess for, for me, it was, it was less of a surprise, but more of a, a concern that, uh, that, that such a large number of people who are getting into their 30s are still uh, only paying 
um, a very low level of, of contribution to pensions. And one would have thought that at some point during the 30s, one would, one would have uh, some additional um, concerns about the long-term nature of the investment and actually putting a bit more aside. So I think that's something that I would expect and hope to see improving as the new, uh, the new levels of contribution come to, into play. We'll, we'll watch out for that one next year. Indeed we will. <laughs> well, thank you both for your time today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank Likewise, you. Likewise, thank you. Make sure you subscribe to catch the next instalment of the Aon Hewitt Pensions Podcast. If you'd like to view a copy of the DC Survey Report and have a look at the facts and figures John and Stephen have been discussing with me today, simply visit the Aon UK website and head over to the Defined Contribution section. You'll be able to download your copy of the report there.